Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, this is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano for our second, second episode this week. Uh, how are you yes. doing, Frank? Oh, doing great, David. Thank you very much. I, I'm tired. I don't know about you, but it's been an I'm exhausting also week. Tired. <laughs> yes, this, we, our classes are supposed to start next week, and the week before classes start, it's always exhausting. But this week, I think, has been extra exhausting for, for all the obvious reasons that we will, we will talk about. Um, so Wednesday was interesting. Uh, Frank, do you want to tell us about, about your Wednesday? Sure. Let me talk about, after all, this podcast is really a vehicle for me to talk about myself anyway. Uh, Aren't so all podcasts Wednesday... vehicles for people to talk about themselves? Isn't that That's the whole true. premise of the genre? Right. Go ahead, That's Frank. why there are so many middle-aged dudes doing them, David. <laughs> uh, yes. So, so Wednesday, uh, I got up on Wednesday morning and I was surprised and I, I guess it's not tipping my hand too much to say pleased to see the uh, election results from Georgia. And we talked a little bit about that when we recorded on Monday. And frankly, I didn't, uh, you know, that was more than I could have hoped for. I, I did not think that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were going to win uh, those two, two uh, by-elections in Georgia. So, so I thought, oh, that's really exciting. And it obviously changes the equation for uh, the Biden presidency and things like that. Then I spent the afternoon, and, and you'll, you'll be familiar with this, David, but uh, recording lectures for online learning. And I want to apologize if there are any of our students who are listening to this, because um, online lectures aren't as good as in-person lectures. That's one thing I could conclude. <laughs> I'm <laughs> <But> sure <laughs> they will love yours, Frank. I have no <laughs> doubt about this. Sure. Well, thanks, David. Uh, anyway, um, but by coincidence, the lectures I recorded on Wednesday were on the Declaration of Independence and the drafting and ratification of the Constitution. So little did I know how germane both of those lectures would be as the events unfolded on Wednesday afternoon, uh, Washington time in, in, in Washington, DC, because of course the counting, the certification of the, of the uh, electoral college votes was due to take place and indeed began and ended up completing in the, in the middle of the night U.S. time um, on, on Wednesday. But there was the attack, and I think attack is the right word, uh, mm. on the Capitol that unfolded um, over the course of the evening. It began around, I don't know, five or six o'clock our time here and then, and then got progressively worse. Uh, as the evening wore on, and I ended up staying up very, very late, indeed, late into the night, Wednesday and into Thursday morning, um, and I was I was uh, kind of, well, I, I don't think it's putting too fine a spin on it to say kind of shocked and appalled by what I saw. What about you? Oh, um, I think my, my, my day was, was very similar in as much as, you know, I spent most of the, the second half of the day Originally, I thought I was going to watch uh, the events inside uh, the Capitol with, uh, you know, the, the the reading of the Electoral College uh, results and the various protests that were or, you know, objections that were going to be leveled against it by by Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and other people. Um, but then, obviously, I ended up watching. <laughs> or the news coverage switched to the events outside the Capitol and then events back inside the Capitol again as the invasion. And I think that's an interesting choice of term for what it was, um, you know, uh, unfolded over the next few hours. It was interesting to hear um, on, on various American uh, and British media outlets as it was unfolding, the kinds of terminology they were 
choosing to use for uh, the Trump supporters. You know, they begin to start talking about them as protesters, and then it, uh, in you know that gradually shifts to being rioters over the course of the evening. Um, and you found many of the, the the news commentators, you know, correcting themselves. They start off by saying protesters, and then recognizing this is not a protest in any kind of way that any of us would recognize, but something else entirely. I guess I, I would say that it was a little bit confusing for them because they were responding to live events. And of course, it began with a protest. There was that rally that mm. the president spoke at and they were then outside Congress or the Capitol as protesters. So they, I guess I'm offering a slight defense. You're right. It was very interesting to see the evolution of language. But I, I think that some of the newscasters were simply caught up because of the way the events unfolded. Oh, to be sure. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy with, with what they have to do. Covering events live like that and trying to make sense of it is enormously hard. Um, and I think that sort of speaks to some of the discussion we had in our episode earlier this week about what to call the you know, Trump had, Trump's uh, supporters' efforts to overthrow uh, the election, whether it's a coup or not, and whether this is can be seen as being part of a coup Um I think it. I think it was, but I guess I was embracing a more liberal definition of what a coup was when we talked on Monday. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think we need to revisit that. I still don't think it was. I think insurrection is a better word, and that was a word they started using on Wednesday night. Uh, let's. But I think we've got okay. more important things to discuss than listening to the two of us argue about what's a coup or not. Oh, to be sure. Um, so, how, how are we supposed to make make sense of what what happened then, Frank? Frank, what what was the it's, it was you know, astonishing to watch uh, uh, these Trump supporters in the houses of, of, of Congress going into Nancy Pelosi's office, going into the floor of the House and the Senate. Um, you know, those were images I was not expecting to see on Wednesday. How, how do we make sense of, of what they were able to do, what the police did or didn't do, what the, the other kinds of law enforcement agencies did or didn't do? Uh well, the, the simple answer is I don't think we can yet. And this is mm. a historian's cop up, but I don't think we have enough perspective. And I'll, and I'll offer a, a, a sort of more, I hope, a more nuanced explanation for that in a second. Uh, as far as the, 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 the second part of your question about assessing what the police did or didn't do, I don't think we know yet. <laughs> uh, and we, we don't have a clear picture. So I was reading uh, today some of the news coverage that, you know, Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, was prepared to send the Maryland National Guard, as well as Maryland State Police in to assist in, in, in dealing with this, this attack. Uh, but he needed permission from the federal government and didn't get it for several hours or an hour mm -hmm. and a half. And, and so I think there were elements like that. And we don't know the timeline of exactly what happened yet. So I don't think we can properly assess what the police response was. I am sympathetic to the view. And indeed my beloved wife said it to me five minutes into this thing. Um, if these were Black Lives Matter protesters, the response would have been very, very different. And lots of people have, you know, that's not an observation original to me or even mm. to, to, to Mimi. Um, you know, many people have made that observation. And certainly there's a contrast with the kind of police presence we saw last summer around the in Washington mm. around things. I'm a little reluctant to go into how do we assess the police response because we don't know exactly what happened in terms of we don't have a we don't have a clear timeline yet of what happened it's clear that the police response was ineffectual 
Oh, and was not sure. proportionate to what happened. But why that was, I don't actually feel that. The, the obvious conclusion is to say, well, yeah, they went easy on them because they were Trump supporters, by contrast with the BLM supporters la last summer. I think that's true, but I also think it might be a slightly too simplistic response. So, so I don't know how to respond to that. As far as what do we make of what we saw? Well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, it was very, very sad. And I found myself kind of emotionally involved in ways I hadn't expected to. I mean, it was a very, very difficult thing to watch. And we need to bear in mind that as of now, five people lost their lives as a result of the, the events on, on Wednesday. Um, uh, I, I was going to say a protester. <laughs> One of the people who invaded the, the Capitol, attacked the Capitol, a uh, woman, a female Trump supporter, was shot and killed by police. And that's video some people might have seen. Uh, as of this morning, a police officer who was in the Capitol uh, died as a result of being attacked by the um, the insurgents, if we can call the insurrectionists. Uh, and then we've heard that three other people died as a result of medical emergencies. We haven't heard much about that. I assume that's heart attacks or something like that. Uh, so, so there was a loss of life. So this is a serious thing. But I found myself really emotionally involved in ways I... I hadn't expected. And that's another reason why I don't think we can, in answer to your question, what do we make of this? I don't think we have enough time yet or perspective. Hmm. We may look back on this and see this. So, so let me offer two possibilities. One is the one that one was hearing on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and is hearing especially from non-US commentators that this is somehow the end of the American Republic. This is a, you know, this is the worst day in American history or uh, language to that effect. I'm not denying that. It was a very, very bad day. The other way to think about this, and I, I and as time passes, this might be the case. We have to see how the events of the next few months unfold. It might also be the last throw of the dice of Trumpism uh, in the sense that, um, you know, th there's a kind of, if, uh, you know, the Trump presidency began on the steps of the Capitol almost exactly four years ago with that bizarre inaugural address where he invoked the image of American carnage. And we've seen a lot of American carnage. since. We've then. seen a lot of carnage since then, but this was the kind of, ultimate act of American carnage. And maybe, maybe, uh, sorry, it's the, it's the end of, it certainly marks the end of the Trump administration. It will, these will be the images that mark the end of the Trump administration, whether it's the end of Trumpism or not. I think, you mm. know, only, t only time will tell that. But in other words, this might look, this might be the final spasm of a racist counter-revolution that failed. And we may see it that way, depending on how history unfolds in the, in the next few years. Or we'll see this as the, you know, if we go, we've talked about the 1850s before, whatever, we might see this as one of those turning points where things got bad before they got worse. And I don't know. I mean, we can't know yet. What do you think? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the question about whether, it, I, one thing I'm thinking a, a lot about is, is will the people who participated in this insurrection and will it the, were the people who supported this insurrection across the country Will they see this as a failure? Or will they see this as a success? In as much as they were able to go and disrupt Congress and be able, you know, the fact that they were able to sort of roam the halls of Congress for hours and hours and, and you know, go through the parliamentarian's office and trash it and steal things from Nancy Pelosi's desk and 
you know, uh, all defacing all other kinds of, of items within the capital, within the, the, the seat of, of government, they could see that as a win, right? And they could, you know, the, the way in which that could be read within that echo chamber is as uh, tr- Trumpism triumphant. Um, and and I think there's a, a narrative there and a mythology that could develop about what happened on Wednesday that's going to be very different from the interpretations that we eventually settle upon as um, as historians. Sure, that's slightly different, though, than your question to me, which was, how do I see it? And how yeah, do I oh, to be sure. See yes, it? yes. <laughs> well, so, I mean, the question then is, 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 you know, what happens and, you know, what happens with this as it, as it, un- as the next couple of weeks and double, next couple of years unfold? Um, I mean, you can envision multiple different trajectories coming out of this. Um, So, I mean, one of the things that people are debating right now is sort of what's going to happen in the next two weeks? What are the possible options about what could happen and what should happen? Um, What are your, you know, the various people have been talking about having another impeachment. People have talked about invoking the 25th Amendment. There have been uh, people asking Vice President Pence to uh, invoke the 25th Amendment. There are people who say maybe we should just wait this out for Trump to leave office in 12 days, uh, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Which of those options do you think is, is a sort of, you know, should we look at each of those in turn and see, see what, what we think about those? Sure. What, I what, mean, what, 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 what do you think about the 25th amendment, Frank? Well, I mean, I think there's a, uh, I do want to talk about the options, I, but I would say, I think uh, by way of a kind of, uh, preamble to this part of the discussion, I'd say, mm. I think there's a distinction to be drawn between what I think should happen and, and what I think will happen. So I think there needs to be consequences uh, to this or uh, for this for President Trump, because his actions directly incited his supporters to take this action. And so, you know, in other words, you know, five people died and, and um, this was a whether it's a coup or an insurrection, let's not have that argument. <laughs> it was bad, and it was, an, it was an assault on the democratic process in the United States, incited by the president of the United States. And so I think there needs to be yeah. consequences for that, not just for President Trump, but frankly also for members of Congress and the Senate, like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who frankly aided and abetted this personally. Um, so I think there should be consequences whether it be the 25th Amendment or the or impeachment and or criminal charges, if necessary, mm. or if, if applicable. I don't think that will happen, though. I, I, I suspect yeah. I suspect given the short time frame, we're talking only about 12 days now, that um, very little will happen uh, because we may be stuck with. I think it was Mitt Romney who said we might just have to hold our breath for the next you know, a couple of weeks and get through this. And I suspect we've been holding our breath for four years. So I suspect that that might be, that's yeah. the most likely outcome, but let's talk about these options. So, so the, twi- so, so the, 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 the we, Tom, <laughs> stuttering. 25th here. Amendment. Let's, let's talk 25th, about 25th Amendment, impeachment or nothing. So those yeah. are our three options, right? 25th so, Amendment is, go ahead, David. 
Oh, so okay. The 25th Amendment, just to sort of give people, a, we've talked about the 25th Amendment briefly on yeah. other episodes, but the, the 25th Amendment was ratified in 1967. It's got uh four sections or four uh, clauses that are, are uh, uh, in action, only one of which is actually relevant here. The first one has to do with what happens when the president dies and says the vice president becomes the president, which is something that had been sort of the operating assumptions before that, but this makes it explicit. The second section has to do with what happens if the vice presidency is vacant and a procedure for uh, replacing the vice president Section three is about if the president is is ill and needs to temporarily transfer power to the vice president. So, and this has been used several times when the president has surgery or some other kind of thing and temporarily transfers uh, authority to the vice president. But the one that matters is is section four, uh, and this is the most the longest of the four sections, the most complicated of the four sections, uh, and this is about removing the president uh, when he's unable or, or she is unable to fulfill his or her duties. And it says that the power to, to remove the, that president from power under this clause rests first with the vice president and the majority of the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide. So they can pick some other body, but at least the default is people in the cabinet. If those people determine the president is able to discharge uh, the, the duties of the office, they have to write a letter to the president pro tem of the Senate and speaker of the house. It has to be written declaration saying that the president is uh, unable to fulfill his or her duties. And then the vice president immediately takes power. And then there's this very complicated procedure that- So sorry, uh, David, let me stop you there. Do they, yeah. uh, before you get to the- comp <laughs> yes. It's complicated it's enough. Only, it's just, so it's a single letter, not they individually write letters. Or, uh, that's a, what it seems to suggest. It seems right, to suggest okay, they, right. they write a letter. And it's a majority of the of the cabinet. It's a majority of the executive- all principal officers of the executive departments is the way it's phrased in the in the actual amendment itself, which people have assumed to mean people in the cabinet. Okay. Um, and we could talk a, bit, a minute about, about what that might mean at this particular moment, because that may be yes. complicated. Yeah, indeed. So they write this letter, then the vice president immediately becomes the acting president. He doesn't become president president, he becomes acting president. Capital A, capital P, acting president. But then the president can write a letter to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House and say, no, I am perfectly able to uphold my, do my job. Uh, this is nonsense. And then the vice president, acting president, and the majority of the principal officers of the executive departments or other such bodies as Congress shall provide, have to write another letter saying, actually, we really meant it. He definitely isn't able to do the job. And there's some timelines embedded in this about when this is, how this is supposed to unfold. And, and, and some of it has a you know, number of weeks, depending on whether Congress is in session or not in session. 
they have this very complicated procedure for how this is supposed to work. And obviously it's never, all the other sections have been invoked multiple times. This one has never been used. Um, so we don't actually have any practical experience of how this would work. I mean, one one benefit of it, it seems to me, David, is that it's very cumbersomeness would be good because it would waste a lot of time. I mean, basically, let, let's face it, we are we're running down the clock now on the Trump mm. presidency. So we've got 12 days to go as of today, as of the day we're recording this. If we get um, Trump and Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, trying to write a letter in response to a letter written by Mike Pence. And these things have to go back and forth to, mm. to uh, leading figures in Congress. This is actually going to waste a lot of time and frankly, keep Trump from doing other things like pardoning people at the same time. So maybe maybe that it's very cumbersomeness could be it could be a could be an advantage in this particular case. Well, my reading of it is that were it to be um enacted or implemented right now, Pence would remain, regardless of whether Trump wrote a response letter or not, Pence would remain acting president for the duration of what's left of the Trump presidency. Right. Now. Sorry, the, sorry go ahead. Go ahead. The question about who the chief officers are of the executive agencies. I'll tell you who they are. They aren't. Helene Chow and Betsy DeVos. Who've Both of whom quit in the past couple of days. Um, in addition to those, however, we've got several other cabinet level positions that have not been confirmed by the Senate and have acting um, secretaries. So the Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller is an acting secretary. The Attorney General, Jeff Rosen, is acting. Um, there may be one or two others. Uh, 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 Homeland Security is an acting, has Chad Wolf there, which means we don't actually know how many executive principal ex officers of the executive departments we have. We've got 15 people in the cabinet, um, but at least five of them seem to be acting members. So it's unclear exactly how many people need to sign off on this uh, letter that the vice president would have to write. And now two of them have, have resigned. Well, that's what I mean, yeah. So that includes both of them as well. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's 10, not, not eight. Now, Pence has said he's not going to do this. Um, one has to wonder why, why he wouldn't do it. This seems to be his bid opportunity to be president for 12 days, which seems like a, you know, better than never being president. Um, the other option, I guess, is impeachment, which there have been various members of uh, both the House and the Senate have, have entertained. Uh, and I think actually a, a bill of impeachment has been at least introduced, um, although obviously they haven't gotten so far as to vote on it yet. What do you think about the likelihood of impeachment? Well, again, we're back and we discussed impeachment in some detail um, in yeah, previous we, we did episodes. it once before, about a year yeah, ago. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, 
But I think, and again, so we have to draw a distinction between the act of impeachment, which is voting on what's essentially an indictment leading to a trial, which could lead to the removal of the president. I don't think the president's going to be removed because you'd need two thirds of the Senate to do that. Um, and, and now I think there is some unease in the Senate now, even among Republicans with President Trump finally. So I think you'd probably get more Republicans than simply Mitt Romney to vote in favor of impeachment if it came to it, but you wouldn't get 67. So as a practical matter, Trump would not be removed via impeachment. On the other hand, uh, a vote to impeach, I think, would be important as a rebuke to President Trump, uh, not least because it would make him the first president to be impeached twice. Uh, so in terms of the historic record, it would be a, it would be a bit of a blot. But also the, the trial would be would require basically uh, looking at and creating a historic record of all the events that happened on Wednesday and in the run-up to Wednesday, and, and that's important. I mean, one of the reasons I favored impeachment the last time around was because you'd get things down on the historic record, even, the, even though the likelihood of the president being removed was then very, very low, indeed nil. Um, and, and so there's, there's an argument, the historian in me thinks that impeachment might be a, might be a good thing. Uh, and it will also tie up and preoccupy the president um, for the final 12 days or 10 days or whatever it is of his term, which, you know, he, the reports are, and this, this is something to be concerned about, and maybe it's more germane for mm. the 25th, that, you know, he is raging around the West Wing and is out of control. And, you know, the order seemed to have broken down within the government on Wednesday night. This is a fact that this is a feature of the story that hasn't got as much attention as I think it will when historians start to write about. It's not clear who called out the additional National Guard troops once they were finally called out. There were reports that it was Mike Pence who did it, hmm. uh, not not President Trump, because President Trump either refused to do it or was switched off at that point. I was when I was kind of watching CNN overnight on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, there was a re report about a, a senior Republican official. That's a, that was all they identified the individual as or described the individual as um, who use the phrase that the president is out of his mind. Um, so, so if indeed that is true in the sense that he really is at his wit's end, um, and I kind of mean that literally now, <laughs> um, then, then it would seem that, you know, the 25th might be more appropriate than the, than impeachment, but either, either track, it seems to me would be important to make a clear, send a clear statement that, what happened on Wednesday is unacceptable. And yeah, this goes yeah. to your earlier point about, well, if this goes unanswered, especially in Trump world, where they see these things very differently, then that could cause a problem. That could cause a huge problem. And so I think that, I mean, I, there's another option we haven't discussed that maybe we shouldn't pass it, which is that, that the Congress could vote to censure the president as well, which would be largely symbolic, but- That's entirely, I mean, you yeah. know, um... Well, again, but for the historic record, I mean, this stuff matters to him. It does, but but I think he would see that as part of a witch hunt, and and you know, there's a way you could spin that where he's the victim. Yeah. Um, you know, there are real concerns about what he could do in the next twelve days. There was an article by Daniel Ellsberg. 
uh, famous of the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers and then was targeted by Richard Nixon uh, in The Guardian today, where he says there's a real possibility Trump's going to use this as an excuse for going to war with Iran. And, you know, the problem with impeachment is, is that if they you know, launch impeachment and an impeachment inquiry, he remains president while the impeachment's going yep. on. And even if he's distracted by impeachment, that doesn't preclude um, really disastrous choices. The 25th Amendment, however, actually immediately, as soon as this letter gets received, removes him from power. Um, and so, I mean, you know, I'm... The, the tricky thing, though, about the 25th Amendment is it does leave so much of the power to make that decision in the hands of the vice president, you know, which may be a sort of design flaw in the 25th Amendment because, you know, Pence has, for the most part, demonstrated um, kind of unfailing loyalty to President Trump, with one exception maybe of his actions on Wednesday, where he didn't, as Trump told him to uh, sort of declare all of the, the votes from the, the states that were uh, Trump claims were, were fraudulent uh, and throw those out like Trump said he could because he can't. Um, but outside of that event, um, you know, Pence has not demonstrated any, any uh, failing in his loyalty to, to Trump and what Trump wants. Um, I, I think politics plays a big part in all of this. And I think what we are seeing among other things, is the beginning of a, I'm slightly reluctant to use this phrase given the context, but I will, a civil war within the Republican Party for the future of the Republican Party. And so I think Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Mike Pence, they all want to be president, right? And they all yeah. want to run for president in 2024. You know, the initial dozen senators who signed up were originally committed to uh, questioning the 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 certification of the electoral college votes. I think we could read that as a list of people who were, who were going to run for president in, in four years time. And they at least are vying for the support of the Trump wing of the Republican party. And maybe mm. the Trump wing is the Republican party at this stage. We're gonna, that's one of the things we're going to find out. I think that and so that might be factoring into Pence's thinking, you know, does he want to risk alienating this key element in the Republican base um, or not? And I, I suspect that rather than loyalty to Trump himself is probably what's causing mm. him is the source of his reluctance. I mean, that's it. I'm speculating and offering an explanation for his reluctance. Sure. I'm not actually offering an alternative to it. Well, I mean, one thing that's striking thinking about the sort of people thinking about future politics is, you know, they, they after the insurrectionists were, were forced out of, out, of, out of the Capitol, Congress, of course, resumed its debate of, over the, the electoral college votes. And, you know, we had these 12 or 13 senators who were going to object before the insurrection happened. You had eight who still voted after the insurrection happened um, and so you had some people making interesting choices there where some of them who had previously said they were going to object decided not to object, but eight of them continued to object. You had 139 members of the House object to the um, electoral college votes after the insurrection happens, which I think speaks to um, 
you know, the, the, as you point out, this sort of fight within the Republican Party, the civil war within the Republican Party, if that's the way we want to think about this, over what the future of the party is going to look like. Um, and I think that's playing out in um, Trump's cabinet right now. I mean, thinking about, you know, Elaine Chao resigning. She, of course, is married to Mitch McConnell, the for who is now the Senate Majority Leader. When the for insurrection now. happened, <laughs> yes, well, for yeah, but when I'm the sorry. insurrection happened, you know, some of them were coming into the Capitol building just to sort of wander around and take selfies and cause a chaos. But some of them seemed to be intent upon doing both physical damage to the building and damage to people. I mean, there's all these images of, of the people insurrectionists with zip ties. Yeah, that's right. implies that they were going to try and kidnap some people or hold people prisoner or something. Uh, Mitch McConnell might have been one of the people they might want to target because they don't see him as a loyal Trump supporter because he didn't um, back Trump's claim that the election was fraudulent. They might have targeted Mike Pence because Mike Pence didn't do what Trump told him to do on that particular day. They obviously would have targeted all the Democrats, but I think they would have been equally angry at those Republicans they see as being disloyal. Um, you know, as awful as Wednesday was, it could have been worse. Um, you know, there were the bombs that were found at both the Democratic and Republican headquarters uh, that thankfully didn't go off or were caught before they were able to go off. I mean, this could have been as awful as those images were that we all watched on Wednesday night. Um, that this event could have spiraled down even into to greater chaos. We could have seen a much larger loss of life than simply the, the five people, five tragic deaths that we did have. Yeah, I mean, one thing to bear in mind, and this goes to your very first question, David, about, you know, where this is going. I think one thing we have to be prepared for, and certainly I hope the Biden administration is, is that um, right-wing terrorist violence is likely to be a factor in American politics for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, now, I doubt We'll continue to be a part of American we'll politics. We'll continue. Yes, that's yes. right. That's right. But 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 I mean, it's I, I you know I don't think they'll get close to the Capitol again. I don't think that will be possible. Um, but I think you know nothing was done about the when when so-called um, COVID protesters or whatever they were lockdown protesters, you know, occupied the Michigan uh, State House and occupied other public buildings earlier in the year and in previous years. Uh, th this is going to be uh, 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 probably the biggest um, domestic terrorist threat that the United States faces for the foreseeable future. Uh, in some ways, in a, in a right wing domestic terrorism has been the big threat that America has faced for the past 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, you know, the, that, the way that terrorism has been branded as an external foreign threat has really um, distracted people from the, the threat posed by, by white right-wing extremists within the United States from Oklahoma City, you know, um, since. Um, That's right. In fact, I, uh, again, words, 
we don't want to get too caught up on words, but people were using the phrase domestic terrorists the other day. And I thought, well, why don't we just call them terrorists? You know, domestic terrorists suggest a different category. But that's because people assume that terrorist means basically Islamic terrorists, non-white Islamic terrorists mm-hmm. who threaten American interests abroad, not um white guys with MAGA hats on or that idiot who was wearing a horns and a fur hat or whatever. Now, speaking of the guys with the, the, the horns and the butt, um, there was some interesting iconography on Wednesday. I think we might, an interesting sort of historical reference points that, that people were using, or at least the, the uh, we saw banners and, and various flags being shown uh, by the, uh, I guess, initially by the protesters and then by the insurrectionists. And a bunch of those seem to actually sort of coalesce around our two historical uh, time periods. Uh, they yes. Lots of references to the American Revolution. They were actually chanting 1776 as they marched on the Capitol, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but maybe it made sense to them. Um Obviously, we saw lots of, of Confederate iconography um, among the insurrectionists, including there's some great, I, I say great only in as much as to be useful for teaching. Powerful. Um, photos of, of a, yes, uh, a photo of, of a man with a Confederate flag right in front of a, a painting of, of Charles Sumner with John C. Calhoun over in the corner uh, looking on. Um, and it was uh, Sumner's birthday, uh, which is an odd juxtaposition. Uh, uh, um, what do we make of the, these particular historical usages? What is it about the revolution and the Civil War that makes those symbols powerful for 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 the Trumpites? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question, David, because. As you say, uh, the, the the iconography was mainly drawn from the revolution and the Civil War. Uh, I'd say uh, of the flags that were visible, uh, the U.S., you know, the contemporary American flag and variations thereof, including the Blue Lives Matter version of it, etc., were probably the most numerous. After that, it was probably Trump flags. Trump flags yep, Trump flags. That's right. There were lots of Trump flags. And then. I either I don't know which was um, third, whether it was Confederate flags or Gadsden flags, the yellow flag with the rattlesnake that says "Don't tread on me," which comes from the Revolution and was the uh, flag that was used during the Revolution, especially in South Carolina, um, and that's been appropriated by the by the far right um, in recent years. Um, and then there were a smattering of various other, mainly um, Revolutionary era flags on display. Uh, I think that there are a couple things at work here. I think about my own period. First of all, uh, for people who don't know much about it, if you only have a passing knowledge of it, it's a time of heroic white men doing heroic white man things, right? <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's a moment. So there are a lot of these so-called three percenters who believe this made-up statistic that only 3% of adult American males fought for independence in 1776, and they're this hardy elite. That the, and so you, you see the Roman numeral three as part of their, their iconography as well, and that harkens back to the revolution. Uh, but they also see the revolution and the republic upon which emerged from it as a republic for white men, 
and and white people, um, um, but particularly white men, and, and and they're not wrong if one takes a very narrow reading of the history of the American Revolution, um, but they also believe that you know this was uh, you know there's the myth and this goes to their interpretation of the Second Amendment of sort of heroic citizen soldiers, again, white citizen soldiers, defending their liberty against a tyrannical government. And so when they were chanting 1776, that's what was at, at play. I was very struck when they were in the rotunda of all places, because the rotunda has these massive paintings by John Trumbull of key moments in the history of the American Revolution. And the moments that are there are really, really striking. There's the Declaration of Independence, uh, and it's the famous one of everybody signing it, even though that, that scene never actually took place, but it's, a iconog it's an iconic uh, moment as presented by Trumbull. The surrender of the British at Saratoga and the surrender of the British at Yorktown, but the, the one I want to comment on that was really striking to me is there's a painting from that depicts the moment in December of 1783 when Washington went to Congress, George Washington went to Congress and surrendered his commission. And so this is actually, I'm writing a book on George Washington at the moment. There are many things about George Washington that I like, and there are some things I don't like. Uh, one of the things where he's, uh, you know, unquestionably an admirable figure is this moment because Washington surrendered his commission at the end of 1783 because he was acknowledging as he did throughout the war of independence that civilian authority was supreme that civilian authority must be supreme to military authority in the United States and so the fact that these people who believe that they have a certain understanding of the revolution um, were kind of protesting and no, not protesting at this point they were attacking the institutions of government in front of this image of Washington acknowledging the, the superiority of civilian authority in the United States um, was an irony. And that's a powerful image for me that I'll probably use for teaching that was completely lost on them, completely lost on them. And, and that, that, that was particularly striking to me. Um, anyway, what, what, what did you think of the iconography of the Civil War era? Uh, well, I mean, the Confederate iconography has been used by white supremacists since, you know, 1865 or since 1861, really. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising that, that, that to see Confederate iconography in conjunction with, with the, the, the uh, sort of Trump iconography. We, in fact, saw that during the, the, the campaign when Trump was running in 2016. Um, and obviously we saw that at, at Charlottesville, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities between what happened um, on Wednesday and what happened in Charlottesville. Both it was a lot like Charlottesville. Of, you know, the, the, the anger of the, the protesters who became insurrectionists, um, you know, anger at the, the media, there were you know, media, both sides that were, were attacked, uh, you know, figure from the New York Times described being afraid for his life on, on Wednesday because they they were going to, you know, they, they beat him and kicked him and destroyed his cameras. Um, you know, the, the response of the police in both situations seems tragically similar. Um, you know, and, and Trump's response to 
uh, his, his message that evening where he, he said uh, we told them to go home, but you could tell from the tone of it. He also said that he loved them very much and that they were Patriots. That was crazy um, when he said the only people you know, he says seen, he loves are protest uh, are yeah. right wing white supremacists. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what he says to Baron, but um <laughs> Sorry, that was inappropriate. Um, but you know, the 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 his comments sounded very similar to the the you know uh, good people on both sides comment yep. that he made um, after Charlottesville. You know, and there have been some very strange condemnations of of the violence that have come out of the White House. There was a very strange press conference last night that lasted two minutes, maybe without any questions. So it's not really a press conference; yeah. it's more of um, so you know i was not surprised to see the getting back to your original question surprised to see confederate iconography but it was really sort of striking you know seeing that iconography inside the the u.s capitol and obviously there are lots of there's actually been a long history of confederate iconography inside the u.s capitol you know uh thinking about sort of the the uh, statuary hall there are lots there until recently were lots of confederates in statuary hall um uh, so it's not the first time that those kinds of, of, of flags have and symbols have been made an appearance in, in the halls of Congress. Um, I mean, in some ways, a lot of those figures showed up in, in the December of 1865 when lots of Southern states elected former Confederates to Congress. Um, but, but it, you know, uh, it, it still was uh, shocking nonetheless. Yeah. So... What happens in the next 12 days, David? Oh, geez. What I th- would love to have happen, and I think it won't happen, but should, is, you know, impeachment's fine, 25th Amendment's fine. I think Trump should be arrested. I think there was an act of criminal activity that happened on Wednesday that he instigated, including the death, the murder of a member of the Capitol Police. Um, and so I think he should be arrested now, honestly. Uh, I think if we're a nation of laws and not of men, then the law needs to apply equally. If somebody else had said, let's go and storm that building, and you know, they would be responsible for the actions of the people who they instructed to do that, if it was anybody other than the President of the United States. Uh, now that's not going to happen. That's sort of my pipe dream of what should happen. Wouldn't uh, you love to really... see a sort of police car pull up outside the White House? And, yes, I mean, you know, cop yeah, it out but, with a pair of handcuffs? No, I mean, I think all of these people who, starting with Trump, but then going all the way down to all the people who, who invaded the U.S. Capitol, they should all go to prison. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the sense that they were all sort of allowed to go home that would be a mistake because that's tacitly telling people in the future that this is okay. Well, they'll be able to identify a lot of them because a lot of them have either self-identified on social media yes. or have been identified, including the guy who wore the lanyard from his work. Yeah, that was stupid. Uh, he got fired. <laughs> I mean, These are not some... the smartest insurrectionists the world has seen. No, no um, that's right. They weren't even wearing masks in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, the, as comical as some of it was with the guy with the fur hat and the horns and whatever else. Um, 
these are dangerous people and they should be arrested for engaging in a, a serious crime. Um, you know, really at the heart of the American democracy. Um, I'm not optimistic any of that's going to happen, but I think that's what should happen in terms of maintaining the legitimacy of, of the entire political institution and in terms of dissuading people from doing this in the future. Well, there have been, 58, there, well, there have been 58 arrests thus far, and I actually think there will be arrests of people they can identify on uh, because of all the social media. Whether the ringleaders or the instigators, mm -hmm. you know, whether uh, Donald Trump and you know is arrested for his part, or Rudy Giuliani for encouraging trial by combat. Yeah, I mean, um, there, there was they weren't subtle about it. Like no, you know, no, just no. the same way he wasn't subtle about trying to to, to persuade the the uh, Secretary of State of Georgia to to engage in electoral election fraud. Um, you know. Giuliani saying we should go and fight this out is is, and then an hour later them fighting it out is 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 pretty clear. No, no, no. And this this uh, sort of there was a time when we were told we need to take them seriously, but not literally. Well, mm. I think we need to take them seriously and literally. <laughs> I think they say what they mean. Donald Trump is not a deep thinker. He says what he means, uh, and we need to take him seriously. As far as what I think will happen, I I think that. Um, I think there will be arrests, actually, and I think it's entirely possible that after his presidency, Trump is going to find himself in all kinds of legal jeopardy for all kinds of things that he's done. And even if he attempts to pardon himself, he won't be able to get out of all of it. Um, mm. But I, but in terms of what happens over the next 12 days, I suspect we're in the Mitt Romney category uh, or situation of holding our breath while we wait for it to end. Uh, he might be, oh, I can't believe I'm about to say this. And by he, I mean, Trump might be chastened slightly and maybe a little bit, but there's no evidence to believe no. this. There's no evidence to believe this. Um, you know, I, we, the one thing it was from the day he was elected. Because he was who he was before he was elected. We knew what we were getting. And the one thing I'll say is I listened to the whole of that phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State. I believe that he believes what he's saying. In other words, I, I think, I don't believe that everyone around him believes that, but I believe that he sincerely believes that he won the election and it was stolen from him. It's the old George Costanza line from, from Seinfeld. It's not a lie if you believe it. And so I, in other words, listen, I believe that he believes all those conspiracy theories and that this was taken away from him. And in that sense, maybe, he, you know, I, I'm not a, I can't, I'm not a clinician. I can't say he's delusional, but, but I believe that he believes that. And that means that for the next 12 days and for the time period after that, when he's, if he's not in jail or until he's in jail, um, he will continue to be a dangerous figure spouting nonsense to people who believe what he says in part, because he does. So he's not a grifter in the conventional sense. He's not, he's not a confidence man who knows he's lying to the people he's tricking. He's more dangerous than that because I think he's not a very intelligent man who believes what he's saying, and he says it to people who are equally credulous. Yes, I think that's entirely right. And I think uh, that's a problem, and I think it's been a problem for the past four years, and it'll be a problem for the next 12 days. So I think we'll, we'll end up holding our breath, crossing our fingers, and hoping for the best. Uh, and as I said, the problem of this kind of terrorist violence will continue for the foreseeable future, 
Um, I think it will be very nice to have a government that's run by people who are more um, sane. <laughs> I shouldn't. I mean, I'm not attempting to be flippant. I, I think. Yeah. I, I think you know the, the, the you know the Biden cabinet that he's unrolling and it's looking good now because this is where those Georgia Senate mm. elections really matter. You know, he's he's appointing people who are I think are going to be uh, very very good. Well, I mean, I noticed he made the attorney general nomination. And obviously this all got lost in the mix because of, of everything that happened Wednesday. He made the, the we, we found out about his attorney general nomination after we learned about the Georgia election results. Yes, that's right. And when it's Merrick Garland. It, you know, Merrick Garland, who, of course, was nominated to the Supreme Court, but didn't get uh, even a hearing because. Mitch McConnell said no, but now Mitch McConnell is just going to be the minority leader, at least on That's right. afternoon on uh, January 20th. Right. Well, we're all going to be holding our breath. Frank, give us something to, to hope for or something to be excited about while we hold our breath for the next 12 days. Well, I said this on Monday, but I want to repeat it, if you'll indulge me, David, which is I want no, to remind no, people no. about the upcoming Fennel Forum, which is a discussion, a panel discussion, which is going to take place via Zoom. Uh, we will share the link. Uh, the link should be imminent. I'm waiting to get it from my colleagues in in, other, uh, in the university soon. Um, but it, it's going to be a, a uh, panel discussion on January 20th at 8 p.m. GMT, 3 o'clock East Coast in the U.S. and Canada, um, and uh, noon Pacific. It will take place after Joe Biden's inauguration. Hopefully we won't see similar scenes in the Capitol then, mm. uh, as we saw this week. And it will include Laura Belmonte from uh, Virginia Tech, Patrick Griffin from Notre Dame, and Joanne Freeman, who's a friend of the pod, um, mm. of Yale. And they will be in conversation with Alan Little of the BBC, um, reflecting on the legacy of the Trump presidency, the just ended Trump presidency and the prospects for the um, Biden presidency and responding to the events of the next 12 days. And I, I it couldn't be more timely. I think it's good. These are great, really smart people. I think it's going to be an excellent discussion. And I would urge everybody to tune in. It's free, but ticketed. So there'll be a link you need to follow. You need to register on Eventbrite. It's going to be very easy. But, you know, please come. So that's 8 p.m. UK time on January 20th. What about you, David? What's your last drop? Uh, well, I, I, there was a story in the news that just, you know, reminds me of, of how close sometimes that the, well, I often think of the distant past is, uh, and that is the death uh, this week of uh, Helen uh, Viola Jackson at the age of 101, who is, we believe, the last remaining widow of a Civil War soldier. No. She was 101 years old. Now, obviously, the Civil War ended 150 years ago. She, in 1936, at the age of 17, married a man by the name of James Bolin, who is a 93-year-old Civil War veteran. And she married him just before his death. Uh, and so, therefore, she, is the, she was the last Civil War widow. And you're saying to yourself, why is a 93-year-old yes, thank 17-year-old <laughs> Or more accurately, why is a 17-year-old marrying a 93-year-old? And what appears to be the case um, is that uh, uh, her family was friends with, with his family and that she was 
tasked with taking care of a very elderly man at the end of his life and that he married her not for um, conjugal purposes or, or what have you, but so that she could get the pension, civil war pension as a widow, uh, as compensation for caring for him at the end of his life. Right. So it's, so it's uh, benefit fraud. It's, 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 benefit, it's, it's, it's pension benefit. fraud rather than anything unseemly. <laughs> There's a different kind of unseemly. Yes. Well, okay. Yes. Uh, but yes. Um, so, but we, we, we should look upon this not, I mean, maybe it is pension fraud of a kind, but, uh, you know, we, we should mark this passing because it does, I think, suggest how even events like the Civil War that we think of as being the distant past for some people uh, were not so much in the distant past. Okay. And on that note, uh, rest in peace to uh, Helen Viola Jackson. Yeah, indeed. Right. On that note, uh cheers frank we'll talk again soon after the next uh revolution uh insurrection or hopefully not excellent yes well hopefully we'll just talk <laughs> all right we'll dave just talk. exactly have a good cheers, weekend cheers. david the whiskey rebellion is hosted by david silkenet and frank cogliano david is a senior lecturer in american history at the university of edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.